This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to his friend John Baptiste Leroy, and he said this, in the world nothing can be said to be certain except, do you remember what he said? In the world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now I'd like to add some other things to that, but but I'm definitely going to add one more. I think nothing else is certain in the world apart from disappointment. All of us are going to feel a sense of disappointment. All of us are going to feel a sense of uh, perhaps life could have been slightly different. I I would say to be self-aware is to be aware often of what you're not, often of what things could have been, what might have been. There may be one or two people who actually find through, through the whole of their lives that actually they never had a sense where they let themselves down or somebody else let them down or they felt frustrated or things weren't difficult. They're, they're, I would say that, that those are very rare. Christian writer Mike Pilavachi, I, uh, I think the quote's here, uh, Mike Pilavachi uh, a, was a youth leader. He's now kind of my age, but still keeps doing youth. I don't know how he gets away with it. Uh, he does soul, the Soul Survivor Camp that you might have heard of. He says, I've met a lot of people who are characterized by one major trait disappointment and I love the way it says it says I'm not talking about wrong size socks at Christmas or watching England go out on penalties and I feel those type you know the World Cup is always going to end in disappointment isn't it so it's great that we qualify but it's always going to end in disappointment you're always going to go to school or to work that next day and think what might have been but he's saying he's not really talking about that he says he said talks about the sort of disappointment the real disappointment that stops you in your tracks and I love this phrase, turning life a damp shade of grey. One writer actually said that we, we live our lives in quiet desperation. We live our lives with a sense of, yes, you know, that we have been stopped in our tracks. And, that, and even in this small community that's God first, there's people who, who've experienced things this last year that have stopped them in their tracks. Tragedy, difficulty, suffering that stopped them in their tracks, however well they were doing, however much they were, they felt that they were, they were trusting Jesus, this thing hit them like a storm. And, and, and for others, you might feel that, that your life is actually characterized by those kind of grey, damp days, which were more typical of when I lived in Manchester than here, but more typical of those kind of grey, damp days where you just feel, I just want the sun to shine. I just want to feel that it's better. And, and, and I don't know what those things are. Maybe you had an idea of, of actually your life was going to be about this ideal family unit. We were with some friends yesterday who we knew in Manchester and they were talking about some really good friends of ours and they just can't have kids. And how their difficulty and cha- challenge of we can't have kids. And, and the disappointment they feel and what do we do. 
and, and you kind of have this, you might even be, you know, want to be married, you might be single in this community and think, well, where's the partner that's going to make it better and it's not how it turned out, it's not how it should be. And maybe so it was a, about family unit, maybe you've just been abandoned or you've divorced or your relationship didn't quite turn out the shape you, you thought it would be. Maybe your idea was that you would have a successful job and you're stuck in this kind of cul-de-sac job that's not, not quite what you thought it would be. Um, I mean, mine, this is mine really. Maybe you hoped to have been an influential conference speaker, but the phone never really rang. <laughs> you know, no one ever said, Howard, we'd love you to come and speak at this, because we know what a gifted communicator you are. Now, and, and, and you can feel those senses of disappointment, and then some of them are trivial, and I don't want to put my trivial disappointments next to your uh, kind of stopping in your track disappointments, but we all... Uh, suffer disappointments. And one of the things that actually I, I've observed is that Christians find disappointments harder to cope with. Christians find disappointments harder to cope with because somehow, somewhere, we were told that bad things happen to bad people. If you do, if you do bad things, then, then bad things will happen to you. What we don't expect is, is bad things to happen to good people. We don't expect bad people to happen to people who, who play by the rules and do the right things. We don't expect that to happen. We've been told that, that our lives should be not storms but mill pond calm. We've been told that we should live in endless cloudless skies of instant answered prayers of bright sunlit days where God comes through for us. And one of the things that I just reflected as I was reading through Mark 5 is what it's like when you have disappointment, what it's like when you've got impatience. How do you respond to that? Because this is not a sermon about despair. This is not a sermon about let's all have a good wallow in dark days and unanswered prayers and difficult challenges. This is about how do you as a disciple of Jesus cope when, when things don't work out. Uh, so if you've got a, a Bible we're going to read, I'm going to read in two sections and I need to go fast because we were remembering and contributing and that was all good and the guys served us really well. But let's go Mark 5.22. Jesus has crossed over. It says, when Jesus crossed over, had again crossed over by boat to the other side. We missed out Mark 4 in this series. In Mark 4, Jesus goes the other way across the Sea of Galilee, and there's a massive storm. But he's coming, and he goes across the other side, meets a guy called Legion, who's got all sorts of uh, evil issues, demonic issues, and he sets him free, and then he comes back across the lake, and that's what Mark's saying here, and I think that's important. It says, when Jesus had crossed again uh, over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus she behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if I touch his clothes I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she'd been freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers, and yet you asked, Who touched me? But Jesus kept on looking around to see who'd done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Father, we just pray. As we look at this, how do we cope when things go badly and how do we wait in faith and how do we hold on to you and reach out to you and what do we do? I just pray that you'd speak to us. Lord, uh, we don't want to make light of anybody's challenges, but Lord, we do believe that we need to wait for you. We need to hold on to you. We need to believe that you will come through for us. That actually, that what happens ultimately in this life isn't the ultimate answer, the final word on our destiny. And so I just pray, Lord, even as we look at these things, I pray of people who feel a sense of disappointment, a sense of grey, dark days, a sense of feeling that, that life's a storm and it's never going to be still. I do pray, Lord, that we would find you this morning. Amen. Okay, right. So Jesus crossed the lake again, and I feel that this this kind of storm in in Mark four is like a prelude. It's like a little introduction. It's like it sort of sets the scene for what's going to happen in chapter five. I haven't got time to go all through chapter five, but basically the storm sets the scene. And if you remember the story uh, of the storm, that they're going across to the other side of the lake, and um, there's a massive squall blows up. It's a bit like the Jonah story, actually. Uh, it, it, you know, the story in the in the Old Testament of Jonah. A big storm blows up. Uh, the the disciples, the sailors, say, "We're all going to die." This is tragic. We're all going to die. And where's Jesus? Asleep in the boat. And that might think, well, he just obviously doesn't get seasick or he's not aware of the wind and the waves. But there's a sense where Jesus is asleep and they need him badly. And they, they kind of press him. Don't you, why are you asleep? Why are you asleep? This is an immediate problem. There's something that you need to do and you're asleep. There's a storm up and we're all going to die and you are asleep. They think he doesn't care. Now actually if you read it in Mark 4 it says, don't you care that we're all going to die? And what happens is that that kind of incident of the storm and Jesus being slow as it uh, seems to respond is, is kind of sets the scene for this. And interestingly, in the Jonah story, Jonah gets thrown into the sea and the storm calms. In, in, in the Mark story, Jesus says, peace be still. But actually, later on, he is going to get thrown in the sea. He is going to face the storm of sin and death on the cross. And so that's the kind of prologue to where we're going. So what we get is this situation where Jesus, who's a working class guy, a Galilean carpenter, and the, the kind of top chap, the mayor as it were, or the spiritual leader of the town, Jairus, a wealthy, prominent religious leader, breaks all social boundaries and falls at his feet. Clearly, Jairus is desperate. He's desperate enough to, to beg Jesus Normally, he would have been the one who says, do what I say, this is what you do, this is how the the society works. But actually, he's come to a point where he's desperate. His daughter, his daughter is acutely ill. Acutely ill. The sense of when it says, my little, my daughter is dying, it doesn't mean she's got a chronic illness that lasts a number of years that may lead to death. She is in the emergency room, she's in the kind of, uh, accident and emergency. She's about to die. We don't know what has happened, but she is about to die. And if Jesus doesn't come quick, if Jesus doesn't come through quick, she's gonna die. 
You know, she's wilting visibly. She's about to die. And he feels a sense of urgency. So he barges through this large crowd. They probably would have parted for him. Jairus. Parted for him. And he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Jesus, you've got to come. And I don't know whether he had a ton of desperation and a little bit of faith or whether he had a whole load of faith, but it certainly had a ton of desperation. He was desperate. And I think sometimes we did this at the Alpha Course on Wednesday with the four or five people that are there. And we talked about prayer. And we talked about how you just sometimes it's almost automatic you're going to pray. And it's not a sense of faith. You just do it because that's the only answer. And we don't know what Jairus is like here. But, but he's desperate. And Jesus says, I'm coming with you. Now, Jewish men don't run. Interesting thing in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, which I prayed, I didn't intend to pray, but anyway, I prayed it. And in the parable of the prodigal son, that the, the father runs. Dignified men, Jewish men didn't run. But, but you can feel, I, as I read this story, I can feel Jairus wants to run. It, it's a bit like, I, I don't know if you ever <clears throat> see kind of when the, when the queen uh, has uh, has a, a, a state visit, or Barack Obama has a state visit. Uh, Rob, please stand. I'll just demonstrate. What what they do is that the, the one who's superior puts his hand slightly in the back of the one who's and and leads them. Yeah, like that. Now you can imagine. You can sit down. Now you can imagine with Jairus, he's got his hand gently in Jesus's back, and he's going, "Come on, come on!" And you know, the, there's a sense he wants to run. This is important. This is essential. And then you can hear almost the echoes of, you know, "Can you speed up, please, Jesus?" You can hear the echoes of the disciples in the boat. Don't you care? We're about to die. Come on, let's run. And it doesn't say Jesus runs. Jesus is just going along. There's a big crowd. It's probably slow. And it says there's a, the, the word the, the gospel writer says like a super, super huge crowd. It's not just a crowd. It's a massive crowd. Slow to walk with a massive crowd around him. And, um, and it, and it, it's interesting that he's, the crowd is pressing around him. And maybe, I don't know what they're there. Maybe they're able to see, you know, maybe they're sort of, Miracle chasers. They're, they're looking for a miracle. They're, yeah, it'd be great. Well, let's, let's see, if, let, let's see if Jesus will do it then. You know, let's see if we'll go to Jairus' house. Let's see the door will be healed. And this super large crowd is, is, uh, is following Jesus with that agenda. But actually there's a woman in the crowd. You're probably familiar with the story. But there's a woman in the crowd. There's one face in the crowd. One woman who's got a different agenda. Her agenda isn't just to go with Jesus and let's just observe, we'll just be observers. That she's got a thought in her mind. She's got something in her mind. But actually, the crowd really works for her. Because actually, in a crowd you can be anonymous. Sometimes uh, I went to a big church in Chicago that seats, uh, I think their auditorium seats 15,000. And they have three services, whatever. And one of the, and the leader said that one of the things about Willow is that people can come and be anonymous. People can come with their hurts and their challenges and be anonymous. Obviously, we don't have that benefit, do we? <laughs> you know, if you come to God first, we kind of know you're here. Uh, you know, and it's kind of hard to hide your stuff. It doesn't take long before people are sharing their stuff. I thought that Flick was very brave this morning and shared her stuff. And it's there's a sense where it's pretty open and pretty real. But but actually, in this situation. Uh, you know, she's hiding. Uh, and the reason why she's hiding is because she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's, at, she's got a, 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 a chronic condition. It's not going to kill her, but it may eventually. 
uh, called hypermenorrhea, which is basically an abnormal, heavy or prolonged menstruation. So it could have been f- caused by fibroids in her tumours in her in uterus. It's not cancerous. But basically she's got anemia from just bleeding. She's having a 12-year period. And obviously, without being too graphic, uh, you know, this isn't the time of always and Lilette's. She would have wrapped herself in cloths and those cloths would have been smelly and dirty. And she would have been weakened with anemia, weakened by blood loss. And she's tried everything. She's tried doctors, she's tried everything. And, 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 but, but it's not just her physical condition that's, that's, that's awful. Actually, the surrounding condition is, is harder. According to the law of Moses, uh, she's, uh, in Leviticus 15, a woman who's having her period, don't ask me to exegete Leviticus 15 for you, I do believe it is the word of God, but a woman who's having her period is unclean for seven days. So a woman who's having her period for those seven days couldn't mix with God's people. She wouldn't be allowed to to go into the, 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 the synagogue. She wouldn't have been allowed to go to be with God's people. She could, if she lay with her husband during the time of her period, that he would be unclean and he would also not be able allowed to connect with God's people. He'd have been isolated from... I'm not talking about God's people, you can't go to church. She's talking about you socially an outcast. So I think what's happened here is that this woman actually, who would have been ritually unclean for 12 years, her husband would have, if, he, if she had a husband, I don't, we don't know how old she is, would have, aban- would have either divorced her or abandoned her. And she would have had to go to the synagogue ruler, who we're told in this story who it is, which is interesting, that we, he has to go to the synagogue ruler, whose name is Jairus, she has to go to the synagogue ruler, and she'd have to say to him, this is my condition. And he would have had to say to her, shockingly, you're not welcome, you cannot come. Now whether, we don't know how many people had this condition, we don't know how many people would be ritually unclean who would come to the synagogue leader and he would have to say, you can't come. But she would have probably come to Jairus and he'd say, you can't come. You've got to stay outside. She is a, a social outcast. She's a leper uh, in that sense of nobody would touch her. And if you touched her, you also would be unclean for seven days. You couldn't go to the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath. She's desperately lonely, deprived of company, deprived of relationship, deprived of fellowship. She's she's She's... She would have lived under not just a, not a storm, but she'd lived under that, as Mike Colavacci says, those damp, grey days of disappointment. I thought, I thought about it, and actually I thought, she wouldn't have felt touch. Nobody would have touched her. So in this crowd, as they're pressing around where you and I would have feel, everyone's pressing against me, she'd have felt touch that she's not felt often. She wouldn't have dared risk being in a crowd where people could have identified her because they'd have said, Ow! Go away! Don't touch me! She's kind of anonymous in the crowd, uh, but, but actually what she's doing in the crowd is she's hiding her vulnerability. And we can do that. In a crowd, uh, the, it, we hide our vulnerability. 
Uh, and, you know, there's lots more that could have been said there, but, but maybe you feel, oh man, I, you know, I, my vulnerability, my, my brokenness, my sin, my disappointment. I, I don't want to share that. I don't want to talk about that. That's too much for me. I'd rather hide it. And she's hiding it in a crowd, but, but she's brave. <laughs> she's very brave. Uh, and it says, when she heard about Jesus, she pressed through the crowd and touched him. You know, touch is a brilliant word, isn't it? It's a kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's an intimate word, it's a, it's a warm word, it's an accepting word, and she, she wants to press through and touch him. You know, I, I think we, we, I could stop here actually, in one sense, you know, I thought, does this, is this two sermons? But the, but the moment of reaching out to touch Jesus is what we are about. Yeah? So, you know, as a, as a kind of word and spirit community, or whatever you want to call it, we don't just believe that we read about Jesus or understand the truth about Jesus, but in the truth of, about Jesus, we, we, we touch him. So, I, I, you know, I love the Bible because I feel that I touch him. But I love worship because I feel that I, I touch him. And I feel that, that you know, that, that, that it's not, our faith is not just cognitive, it's not just an idea, it's not just a good theory. That, that there's a sense where we need to be touched by him and he needs to touch us. To be touched by Jesus for this woman is the only way she can be clean. To be touched, for us to touch Jesus is the only way we can be free of secret sin. To, be, to touch Jesus is to cure that inner ache of disappointment and hurt from the past. It's the only thing. To touch Jesus is the only way to become who you're created to be. To touch Jesus is to reach out for life. She, she reaches out to Jesus in her uncleanness. And what does he do? His cleanness flows into her. His spirit, his grace, his power flows into her. It's the gospel story, isn't it? That's what we do. We reach out to Jesus in our unclean sin, which spreads and pollutes and is contagious and, and, and in some way affects the world as, you know, the world is broken because of the uncleanness of our sin. And, and, you know, we can't kind of seal it off. We can't say, well, we'll keep you away, person, because you're a sinner, but because actually the whole crowd is dirty. The whole crowd is contagious in our sinfulness. But what happens on the cross is that, 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 we, that Jesus carries our, our uncleanness so that we can wear his cleanness. And so the woman reaches out and touches Jesus. And, and what, but, but imagine Jairus now. Jesus is walking along and there's just a crowd. It's, you know, think Monday morning, Waterloo, kind of tube station, you know, Liverpool Street. It's not Cheltenham, you know, if you go to Cheltenham stations three or four on the platform you don't really stand next to each other you pace space yourselves out kind of conservatively so that you don't stand near anyone but if you do in london then what you do is in london you press together that everybody's pressed together and it's this kind of massive crowd and it's like as almost as if you imagine the monday morning commute the the crowd is moving and suddenly jesus stops jairus is going to go whoa why have we stopped why have we stopped? This is urgent situation that you are coming to deal with for me, Jesus. Thank you. Why have we stopped? Jesus is a, you know, imagine he's on the tube 
And he's standing with his friends and, he's, and he suddenly starts to turn around and says, who touched me? And they go, it's Monday morning on the tube. What are you talking about? Who touched me? It's the crowd is pressing around. Why is why somebody has touched me? And it's interesting with this woman that, that actually she wanted to touch Jesus and disappear into the crowd. But actually just getting your body healed was not what Jesus was about with her. He wanted to encounter her. He wanted to stop. He wanted to wait. He wanted to say, you matter. You matter. There's this, if he was a doctor, he'd be struck off. He's dealing with this woman who actually could be dealt with later. And he's leaving the, 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 the lady in the, in the kind of emergency room who's about to die and he's just saying, well, I'm just, you know, he'd be struck off. It's kind of malpractice, negligence, but Jesus is stopping. Jesus is stopping, waiting. And he says to the woman, doesn't he? You know, I've said before, there's no healing in hiding. The woman finally comes forward. He's looking around. He's not going to... Something's gone out from me and I'm going to wait. And The woman comes forward. She, and, he, and, and I love what Mark says. He says he t- she tells him the whole truth. Now, you've been suffering for 12 years. How long is the whole truth going to take? How exposing is the whole truth going to be? It is not going to be easy. So while Jesus is interacting with this woman, listening with, you know, with his eyes, which I sometimes struggle to do, and listening with the whole of who he is, Jairus is behind. She's going on and on and on and on. And it's that woman. But I think it's interesting because as Jairus is listening to that woman, what is he going to think? I think maybe his, his anxiety that he wasn't in control, because, you know, if you've got a bad temper, it's not usually when people are, bad, are rude to you, it's because you're not in control. And he's, you know, you could, I could feel his anxieties, I'm really rising up. But maybe then as she tells his story, she said, you know, I've, I've been bleeding for 12 years and my husband's abandoned me and I've been outside community and I went to the, the leader of the synagogue... Suddenly Jairus is in the story, isn't he? Suddenly Jairus is thinking, 12 years. That's how old my kid is. Thinks of all the joy and the memory and the good things about his daughter. 12 years. He says, 12 years. He didn't ever thought about her. Never maybe even gave her a second thought. 12 years. What's he thinking? Suddenly he's realizing, no, he stopped. He stops in his tracks as well this is a storm around Jairus storms raging around Jairus he's feeling his own inadequacy suddenly he's feeling maybe his own hard heart he's feeling the acute nature of his daughter's problem he's feeling that he's feeling frustrated with with Jesus for stopping it's a storm I don't know what he does he's battling with the emotional wind and waves he doesn't quite know what's supposed to happen but what he knows is not supposed to happen, just happens. While Jesus is talking to the woman and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace as that's calm after the storm. 
There's that sunlight after the grey clouds. Go in peace, freed from your suffering. He hears that, and I think that, that Jairus must have immediately felt a sense of faith. Jesus can do that. And then what happens is, while, the, while Jesus was still speaking, some, I'll read the rest of the passage, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? I love it in, the, in verse 36 actually. In, in the NIV it says, overhearing, overhearing. So they says, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus, overhearing. No, I think he's doing more than that. He's ignoring. Ignoring what they said. Uh, it's in the footnote at the bottom of the NIV. Ignoring what they said. Jesus told them, told him, do not be afraid. You can hear the storm. Just believe exactly the same words he says to the disciples in the storm. Then he would not let anyone follow him. He dispenses with the crowd, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the home of the synagogue leader. Now, what has happened to Jesus and this unclean woman? What has she done to him? What has she done to him? She's touched him and made him unclean. She can't, if Jesus, if Jairus now says, come to my house, what's happened? He's unclean. He can't do his job. Everybody's watching what's going to happen. So he says, they came to the house of the synagogue leader. Jairus doesn't stop him. He's desperate. Sometimes silly rules go when there's desperation. Jesus saw a commotion, a storm, a commotion, when people were crying and wailing loudly, and he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after he put them out, took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and there went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Talitha Kuom, which means little girl, Talitha means little girl, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old and they were all completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give us something to eat. As Jesus waits, what Jairus fears all along happens. Your daughter is dead. What do you do at that point? Put yourself in Jairus' story, Jairus' shoes. It's over. What do his friends say to him? It's over. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's over. It's time to quit. It's now beyond him. Give up. He can't do it. Mike Pulavachi says this, I'm convinced that most of us go through at least one very wisely it says possibly extended period where plans and aspirations and hopes and dreams appear to have come to nothing talking about Christians he said we may have been fired up on inspired visions of tremendous works we could do for Jesus or perhaps we've been holding on to a promise that we believe came from God about the future but now that has died and nothing it seems is more draining of our spiritual deal than the disappointment of the failing of a dream. He stops in his tracks and that's it. 
it's over. And I think that, you know, the, the question we've got to ask then is, will we wait for, for God? Will, 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 will Jairus wait for God? Will he say to those, to the, will he agree with those voices and say, it's over. I wanted a partner, but you never provided. I wanted healing, but you never healed me. I wanted to be free from suffering. It never happened. I wanted my life to turn out differently without the pain and the struggle, and it never came through. We're done. Martin Luther King says this, the ultimate test of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and crisis. What is Jairus going to do? Is he going to listen to the voices? Now it's interesting because the voices don't go away. He ignores those first voices, doesn't he? And they make their way to the house. And what does he arrive at the house? Don't know what can say what it said. What, 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 and he arrives at the house. What's happening? A commotion of wailing. What's happening is because Jairus is a rich person. It's almost in the time when people death was common that there'd be professional mourners who would beat their head, women who would beat their head and beat their chest and wail. Wail like that. You often see it in, in West Bank when somebody's died or Syria. You see it when someone's died. And there'd be people who would play instruments like mournful funeral tones. He comes and he enters the funeral. The funeral's already happening. They buried him within 24 hours. The funeral's already happening, and Jesus says, ah, don't worry, she's not dead. And what do they do? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. Now, it's interesting about faith, isn't it? I sometimes meet people who, who've got faith, and they sound stupid. And frankly, that's because they are. They've been stupid. A guy, a friend of mine who was, who was in Bath, he said, um, you know, we believe in God. This is what he said. He had three kids. He said, oh, we believe in God that we're not going to get pregnant. So we're not going to use any contraception. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to abstain. We're just going to believe God has said, I'm going to have three kids. So we're just going to go, go ahead. Now, now, is that faith? Well, if God has said, maybe, who am I to say? But I thought, are you sure? Are you sure? And sometimes faith sounds stupid because it is. Yes, sorry, I didn't say. Yes, they did. Fourth kid. Sorry. Thank you, Tony. That's very helpful. But sometimes faith sounds stupid and it isn't. How do you know? How do you know? People say, God told me to do that. How do you know? But you can answer at this point. How do we know if it's stupid or not? We've got a Bible gives us a can of hand, doesn't it? You know, if it's kind of in line with the sort of stuff, we can do that. But sometimes we just don't know. And you don't want to put out your friend who says, I just wonder if you really heard from God. Yeah? So sometimes they put people, we've put out those people. But So that's the balancing point. I've just done that for all you people who are worried that we're mad charismatics here. I've just done that for you. But the other side is, Jesus says what? She's not dead, she's just asleep. And they all go, ha, yeah, right on, Jesus, you're mad. She's clearly dead. She's dead, you are daft. She's dead. And they all laugh at him, and what does he do? Puts them outside. Puts them outside. 
And I would say that if you're living the Christian life, if you want to build a church, if you want to walk with Jesus, you're going to try and believe God for something. You're going to try and say, I'm going to wait for God. And your friends are going to say, like Job's friends, now forget it. It's stupid. It's never going to happen. It's not going to do it. They're going to say, God will never do that for you. He can never see that for you. You'll never see freedom. You'll never see breakthrough. And what do you have to do with those voices? Say it after me. Put them outside. Put them outside. You've got to put the voices in your head outside. It's never going to grow on 50 people, Howard. It's never going to break through. It's never going to be what you had in your heart, what you felt God say. It's never going to be that. You'll put it outside. When the moaners and the critics and the cynics, then you put them outside. Jesus put the laughing and unbelieving voices outside. And I think you've got to do that. This is what this is what Paul writes about Abraham. He couldn't have a kid. Reverse story of what we just alluded to. He couldn't have a kid, but yet he's still trying. He's still believing. He says his body's as good as dead. His wife's as good as dead. It's over. It's over. It's over. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Without weakening in his faith. What does that look like? Man, it looks like this. He faced the facts that his body was as good as dead. He faced the facts. Faith is not denying the facts. She's not really dead. But yet Jesus seems to be doing that. But he's not denying the facts. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. You've got to have a promise from God. But he strengthened his faith and gave glory to God. And he saw it. He saw it. The thing is though, we often don't wait, do we? Erwin McManus says this, waiting on God requires us to continue to do what is right even when the situation does not change. Oh, it's fine when God comes through. I'm believing for a baby. Baby. I'm believing for a baby one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, twelve years. Waiting on God requires that we continue to do what is right even when the situation does not change. Patience encompasses a life that follows God even when it appears that God is moving far too slow in following through what he's promised. Patience holds, patience holds out for the good. Faith waits. Faith waits. Rodney McBride says this, faith is often strengthened. What would you put at the end of that quote? Faith is often, it's not up there so you can't cheat. Faith is often strengthened at the place of disappointment. You've got to wait. You've got to wait. You've got to wait. Jesus knows that Jairus' daughter is dead. He's not playing games. But there's something maybe about a sleep here that tells us two things and we'll fin- we're almost done. What, what, a sleep. Where have we heard a sleep before in Mark? Jesus is asleep in the boat. Asleep. There's a storm. It's got to kill him. It's overwhelming. And in one sense, we've already seen the first casualty. Jairus' daughter is dead. There's a storm blowing. And, and he says, she's asleep. And the, the disciples must have heard, asleep. Peter and James and John are gone with, asleep. And suddenly what they're thinking about storms is very different. We know that Jesus has come through and calm a storm. They're, they're thinking, can he come through and raise the dead? 
But I'm thinking, yes, because they bowed down and said, who can, what kind of guy is this? But maybe there's something else about she's asleep, and I love this, that, that she goes in, he goes into the room, he goes with mum and dad into the room, Jesus goes into the room with mum and dad, and he sits down on the side of the little girl's bed. You know, and if it, I'd just be provocative for the sake of it. But you know, if he was kind of a TV evangelist wearing a white suit, he'd go, Heal in Jesus' name. And the little girl goes, Whoa! <laughs> now, you know, if that's what God tells you to do, that's okay. But it's not my style. It's, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's not my, but, but Jesus doesn't do that. There are times when he commands a storm. Maybe when he's commanding the storm, he stands up and goes, Be still! He says it that way. Maybe, but this time it's really quiet. It's almost, I feel as like a little, a hand, he takes her by the hand and it's a little whisper. A little whisper. And he says, little girl, get up. He's doing what the, what mom and dad do every morning, isn't he? It's that little girl, that Talitha, it's interesting, Jamie and Nair call their kid, uh, their daughter Talitha, and it means sweetie, doesn't it? It means little, my little girl, my sweetie. And he takes her by the hand and says, little girl, He's facing the worst thing that can happen to a person. He's facing death and disappointment. He's facing the raging storm that sucks life out of dreams. The howling wind of judgment on our self-reliance. He takes hold of the girl's hand and lifts her through death. He lifts her through death. We all think death is the ultimate answer, the ultimate word, the ultimate disappointment, the ultimate storm that stops us in our tracks, the ultimate thing that can never... And he lifts her through death. Jesus is the ultimate father. It's not a cliche. It sounds cliche. It's not. He has you by the hand. He has you by the hand. I, I tried to look for it. I could not remember it. You might be able to help me. There's a, there's a film that I watched. I, I think it might be called Sophie's Choice. Uh, I watched it some years ago, but I couldn't find the actual clip f- for you. But basically, that uh, it's Sophie's a mother, and she has a little daughter, and they go into the concentration camps in the Second World War, Germany. And the little girl's telling her story later, many years later. She survived the camps, and she's telling her story, and she she just cries and said. She let go of my hand. What happened to your mum? They said, I don't know. She just let go of my hand. And, and I, you know, if we don't really feel it now because we're not kids. But to have your parents lose you in a crowd, to let go of your hand, scary, isn't it? Uh, you know, to have your mother let go of your hand when you're facing, when your mum's facing death and you're being ripped from your family and, the storm's raging all around and she just said, she let go of my hand. It's not a cliche. Jesus does not let go of our hand. He does not let go of our hand. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, you've let go of my hand. But in the morning, but like this baby, if you'll let me, this child, if you let me go with, I believe the Father there's lots of aspects to the resurrection, but just go with this side of it. I believe that almost like the father reaches down and takes hold of his son. He says, come on, get up, get up, arise. No matter what your circumstances say, Jesus 
has been separated from the Father so that you don't have to be. Jesus has faced the waves of sin and death and the ultimate storms of life that would rip it all from me. And if you think, it can't, my life can't be changed. I've been so hurt, so damaged, so disappointed. He's let go of my hand. He has not let go of your hand. You might have faced a horrible gyrus guy who's cast you out, but no, Jesus has not let go of your hand. Jesus has not abandoned you. He, it says, doesn't it, that, that about Jesus that God did not abandon his son to the grave. He has not abandoned us. The risen Jesus is not asleep, he's alive. He'll never let you go. In the long nights of disappointment, he has you by the hand. In the storms of life, he says what? What does he say? Peace. Be still. You know what needs to, in the big storms of my life, you know what needs to stop? Who needs to still? <laughs> it's me. It's not the wind and waves in my life that need to be taken away. It's be still. I think somebody prayed it even this morning. Be still and know that I'm God. That's the, the disciples' way, isn't it? Don't be afraid. I've got your hand. Just believe. If you feel that you've suffered that sense of disappointment, that sense of it wasn't quite how it should have been, um, you've got that gnawing ache, that ache that that gnaws away at you, that, that, that eats away at you, and you feel it can never be different. I want to, as we worship, to ask you to reach out your hands literally, physically, I think Tara asked us to do things physically, physical, reach out your hand and say, I'm reaching to him. And if you feel that that the final word has been spoken (coughs) on your situation, the final word has been spoken on on your family background, the final word has been spoken on your finances, the final word has been spoken on your relationships, the final word is spoken and you've been discarded, disregarded, and you're despairing, then we need to say, Jesus, come in. To put out the mad voices and say, Jesus, just come and take me by the hand. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.